Okay. Good morning and welcome to the Coot Street Podcast. This week we're at the uh, Australian National Science Fiction Convention, SwanCon, in Perth, Western Australia. And I'm cursed, but he's only lucky to be joined by two. <laughs> There's to, a slip. To, to be to, joined by two very, very serious, sober, and no doubt rather dull guests. So, uh, without further ado, first of all, Elisa Krasenstein, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. And John Scalzi, it's a very great pleasure to have you join us today. Why? Thank you. It's good to be. Why actually is it? You've come a long way. I have. It was. This is literally Perth. Is literally as far as I can go on the planet yes, it is. and still be on land. Yes, it is. Right? I actually went to the Google Maps and checked. The, yes. the exact opposite is between Perth and the uh, French Southern and Antarctic lands, yeah. somewhere in the Indian Ocean. But this is further than that island is. So this is as far as I can get. So to paraphrase somebody else, you've come miles and miles and miles across shark-infested waters. Yeah. Um, has it been worth it? I really like Perth, I, I have to say. I mean, I think I came at the right time. It's the beginning of fall, so it's not too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got off the plane and out of the airport, and it looks exactly like San Diego. To me. It really does. It really does. It does. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And, which is great, because I love San Diego. Yeah. And, and I, saw, I think, in terms of your continent... Um, it's kind of where San Diego is, so yeah. it, the, I think the comparison is, is the same. You've also got, what is it, uh, a naval station yep. here, yep. so yep. The, the, the comparison is apt, and I really enjoyed it so far. I mean, um, I also came with a book to finish, Yes. and I managed actually to write 24,000 words in four days. What is that like, writing 24,000 words at a convention? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't bad. It was, there were two things that were helping. One... Most everybody who I know is asleep during the day here. Yeah. And the first couple of days, the convention hadn't really started yet. Everything was in the evening. So, so during the day, I was just able to write and not be distracted by Twitter and by everything else. Um, and the other thing is, is I just think um, coming to to Perth and coming to Australia, like, actually, literally allowed me to get out of that literally figuratively yeah. allowed me to get out of my head. Yeah. Right. Mm. Just a completely new. You know, place and so no distractions. You know, uh, everything worked out the way it was. When I was done, I went out and took a walk down the, you know, down the river. Um, so it really helped. I mean, I think it also helped that um, at this point I know where everything was going to go. Right. So a lot of what I was writing was just typing because all of the story stuff had been cleared off in my head, and so it was just a matter of doing it. And I'm behind on this novel. I mean, I was behind on the novel. I, I was late. I was, I was supposed to have turned it in at the beginning of March, and the book is coming out in August, so it's a very, very tight schedule. Yes. So it, it had to get done, but, you know, yesterday at 9.02 I am, I wrote the last two words in the thing, and I'm just like, I'm done! <laughs> and then I went immediately to go do, do stuff uh, at the convention, and then after that, I came back up to the room and people are, are you gonna go to the masquerade? I said, Yeah, if I'm up I'll make it. <laughs> I was I was asleep before seven PM and you know, woke up at yeah. three and that was fine. Yeah. 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 And so now this is what the next uh, old man's war book, the follow up yeah. to the human division. Yeah, it's the end of all things. And that's coming out August. August eleventh. And does this bring you to a caesura at least in the old man's war world, or are you going to be returning soon, do you think? I think that uh, Human Division and The End of All Things are uh, a diptych. They are two books that are telling kind of a story that relates to uh, each of the, in in the books. Um, And after that, I don't have any plans to write any more Old Man's War books, which always turns people into panic. They're like, The End of All Things, does that mean that they're not? It's the end of all things. It's there in the title. Of all things. Of all things. (laughs) Right. Uh, and, and I have to tell people, no, I don't actually do that. I'm not one of those people who's like, I'm never going to go back to that, you know, because I might want to go back to it because, A, for example, I might find another story that I'm not sure. telling it. B, I might be desperate for cash, <laughs> you know, uh, all these sorts of things. But, the, you know, when I did Old Man's War, there were four books that basically charted John Perry and his yeah. family, right, and then sort of their story. And when I was done from that, I stepped away from the Old Man's War universe for five years because I didn't really have anything new to say to, uh, about it. When I did The Human Division, it was in part because Tor came to me and about the digital yes. you know, thing that they were doing, episodic thing. But it was also because I had stories that I wanted to tell in the universe again, so it was the right place. I told those stories in these two books, um, and so then after this, 
literally if I come back to the universe, just like I, at the end of um, um, Zoe's Tale and The Last Colony, everything changes, and so we'd have to kind of uh, start over again, which will be interesting to me if I ever do, but for right now, everything kind of comes to a close. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, setting aside the passion of Tor Books Accounting Department, yeah. what is it that attracts you to come back to the old man's war universe, setting aside its popularity with readers, is there something that an existing universe gives you to play with that allows you to address questions that you can't have so much elsewhere? Well, I mean, you know the rules of your own universe, right? Mm. And it's kind of comforting to be able to go back into it and know that people are going to trust you to, you know, tell a story, that they're, they're with you up to a certain point, at which point you have to, you know, earn their trust again. I mean, one of the reasons why... Um, when Tor asked me, Tor came to me and asked me to do the episodic mm -hmm. thing, right? Yeah. Part of the reason that we did it with the Old Man's War universe is because we knew that we had the buy-in. And mm -hmm. from a creative point of view, having that buy-in um, is comforting because it does allow you to do things that you might not otherwise do um, because you're worried about having to gain the audience trust right sure. away. Um, so I have a little bit of credit to play with. Again, you can totally spend that credit poorly. Mm. Um, and if you do, that's on you. Yeah. But uh, So you have a little bit of that buy-in. Um, there is the understanding that people really do like the universe um, and that even if you were to fail miserably, they'll probably forgive you for it, which yeah. you might not necessarily do uh, with a standalone. Um, and then also, I just like the, I like the place. I mean, I like the way that it's built out. I like the, the philosophical quandaries of the colonial union and its relationship with the conclave and with other species. Mm -hmm. um, and those are not things that I can necessarily get in another world that I've created, because otherwise it will be, you know, just basically going over the same old territory. Sure. I mean, given that the Old Man's universe is in many ways as classic a space opera universe as you could build, We're pretty much. Yeah. Um, how different do you feel it is from the kind of space opera you, you would have seen 40 years ago? I think... Um, in many ways, it's not that different. I mean, Old Man's War, the original one, I wrote as a uh, Heinlein juvenile. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was very explicit about that. I even acknowledged him in the in you know the yeah. acknowledgments. So, uh, in many ways, it's meant to be that because that is the sort of stuff I enjoyed reading when I was a kid. The major difference is, um, it's not 50 years ago. It's not 60 years ago. And I, as a writer, live in a context um, that is vastly different. Sure. You know, just the, you know, the water in which we culturally swim mm. um, is is completely different than the one that, you know, Robert Heinlein or Olaf Stapleton or whomever um, would have yep. uh, been in. Yep. So, and that's going to that's gonna make a difference as well. I mean, the format is pretty much the same. Um, it's the authors who, who are different. And it's not just me, it's also like James S.A. Corey. Of it's course. also... Um, and Lecky, you know, all those people who are doing space opera now, um, but are are uh, incorporating the fact that we live in the 21st century, in the second decade of the 21st century. Uh, and if we were just replicating not only the form, but the context of space opera that originated 40, 50, 60 years ago, mm. um, that would be, in many ways, kind of a failure on our part. So is the, is the appeal then, the nostalgic appeal to people who read back then, mm -hmm. and do you feel whether there's an appeal to new readers who have no context of the Heinlein juveniles? Like oh, absolutely. I mean, I've had people who have said to me that they read Old Man's War first and then went back and read Starship Troopers because that's where how they heard of Heinlein, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that there, I mean, I, when Old Man's War came out, it was the beneficiary of, for a while, there was not a whole lot of Heinlein-like material out there. And so when that came out, and it was very explicitly, this is what you go to Heinlein for, um, there were a bunch of people like, ah, finally, right? But there were also lots of people who never had read him before, and lots of people um, whose entrance into science fiction was much later. One of the things that, very, that frustrates me um, about a lot of old school science fiction authors, or, or uh, fans, excuse me, is whenever someone says, well, what should I read? They always you know, list these things that are 40 or 50 years old, and you're like, no, you can't do that. Mm. You know, just like you know, if someone says, oh, I'm interested in a movie, yeah. what movie should I you know, watch? You want to give them something uh, that's a, a little bit newer. It's not saying that you don't go back to the classics eventually, 
and, and find out more uh, the context if that's interesting to you. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, I mean, I don't expect my daughter to like the same movies that I liked when I was her age because that was 30 years ago. Of course. She's going to, you know, there's that generational reset. Um, with the science fiction genre a lot, there's not the understanding that the general reset, the generational reset has happened. Mm-hmm. That yes. people who are 15 or 20 or 25 are not going to be reading the same things as the people who are 50, 55, 60. And neither group is wrong. It's just, you know... Yeah. Different context. Different context entirely. Well, also, I mean, I think across the history of the field, I mean, certainly over the last quarter century, there have been several deliberate attempts to redo Highland Juveniles. Right. And I've always felt that it missed the basic point, mm-hmm. which was that in 1958, when Heinlein, who, whatever you think of his work, was a pretty savvy kind of guy, uh-huh. sat down to write a book for teenagers in 1958, right. written by a guy born in 1907, right. it's kind of different yeah. for a kid who was born in 1995 yeah. and whose parents were probably born in the 70s. Yeah. You know, it's a different world, but for some reason, the kind of things people want to talk about in those books never changes much. Well, if you want to actually replicate Heinlein, you don't write what Heinlein wrote, you look at his commercial ethos, right? And you nailed it. I mean, Heinlein went in, and he was, the thing about Heinlein is that he was very pragmatic about his career. He was looking at the available uh, field for science fiction and fantasy, and he was like, I can't make a living off of this. So he aimed at Colliers, he aimed at Saturday Night, uh, you know, Saturday Evening Post, he aimed at the Slicks, as they called mm, it back yeah. in that day. And he did that um, explicitly, intentionally, and he tailored his work to that audience. Um, and so there's a lot of irony that a lot of people are like, you know, believe themselves uh, to promote Heinlein and, and Golden Age stuff, uh, are not actually grasping what his ethos was. You know, if Heinlein were writing today, he wouldn't be writing Highland uh, Juveniles. He would be writing like Susan Collins. Yeah. He'd be writing like mm. Scott Westerfeld. He'd be writing like uh, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. And that's the thing that that I think gets missed a lot, that it is not about um, you know replicating his style and format or anything else. It is understanding that he had a complex and indeed subtle knowledge of the market and mm. he aimed himself at it. Yeah. Mm. But perhaps it, that did drift over time a little bit. Well, him. once he became him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a difference. I mean, there are, I mean, people started, uh, you know, at a certain point, people stopped buying Heinlein stuff uh, because it was a good story and started buying Heinlein stuff because it was Heinlein, yeah. right? And that happens with every successful author. Once you become, you know, for better or worse, once you become a brand, yeah. um, then people... Uh, begin to buy you regardless. I mean, I have people come up to me and they say to me, it's like, uh, I don't care what you write, I'm going to buy it. And in one sort of sense, I was like, Woo-hoo! Thank you. Thank you, yes. You <laughs> Mortgage, know. yes. Mortgage, yes. On the other hand, there's a danger to that, which is, you know, the whole thing of becoming the big name author and too big to edit and everything yeah. else like that. Um, and it's really, uh, it's a really significant thing. But for Highland, yeah, eventually he was like, well, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write about, you know, and I know this works, so I'll keep doing yeah. that. And same with Asimov, and same yeah. with Bradley. And certainly, the greatest testament to the fact that you're right about his awareness of the so- of the uh, economic, economic field yeah. has to be the, the posthumous novel that came out, you know, some you know, some years ago. Variable Star. You, no, no, that was the Spider Robinson uh, one. The other one. It was his very very first oh, novel. Oh, We the Living. Yeah, for, for us, for, for, for We us, the Living. For living, us, for us no, living. We the Living was the main. And what, for what's us, fascinating about that book is this is this lost manuscript that comes out many many years ago, but it was his actual first novel. Yeah. And it is just as wacky as all the light books. Oh. Absolutely just as wacky. Right. It's just that he's gone along, got, obviously sat down and gone, okay, first of all, I have to write for John Campbell. He's not going to buy this stuff. Right. So I'm going to do my write, 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 write. And so if John Campbell were sitting there today, equivalent you know, editing for Tor.com yeah. mm-hmm. as the highest paying market in the field, yeah. right. they're not buying that stuff. Yeah. So we'll buy that. And then, yes, you're right. It's like 1950s, there's no real book market for adult science fiction at all. Right. The money's in books. What do you do? You write. You know, you just like open your bottom drawer and all this stuff. Right. Well, and the other thing is, is that I mean, we don't want to. I, mean, I, I don't want to overplay that. I mean, I mean, he wrote to the market, but he also wrote to the market the way that he would want to. Oh, sure. To the market. You know, so there was always, you know, there was always who Heinlein was as a writer was always part of the the equation. But yeah, he was very clear about 
this is the market. This is where I want to go. This is where I want to be. You know, the fact that he went to the Slicks and he went to the Juvies um, meant that when he did eventually, you know, say goodbye to his editor in the Juvies and start, uh, you know, explicitly writing the adult stuff, um, he already had buy-in from uh, from two groups: the yeah. people who've been reading him in the in the magazines um, and the people who'd grown up with his Juvies. So. He was a very he was a very savvy man, and again, like like I said, all the people were like, "Well, I want to write like Highland," and, and trust me, I get that. Yeah. Um, but it's really missing the point. I mean, one of the things about my career that I've said over and over again is that I I kind of get what my role is in science fiction, which is I am the accessible guy right now. Sure. Right. I'm the guy who writes stuff that you can give to someone who doesn't read science fiction. Who's like, "Well, I don't want to read that stuff," and you give them red shirts, and you give them Lockin, and you give them Old Man's War. And it's familiar enough that they can go, oh, I can actually, I get this. And then you're like, great, now Charlie's Dross. Now, you know, Paolo Bacigalupi. Now, um, you know, China Mieville. Now, Anne Lecky, you know. So do you think, based on your experience, that's what happens? Do you, do you, do you feel that, uh, I understand, intending to, to fulfill the role of gateway, if you like, mm-hmm. to a lot of the field, do you feel that that's what's actually happening in, you know, when you, hear, you talk to readers? Um, I get a lot of fan mail that says I don't read science fiction, but this was given to me, or I saw this and I decided to try it. So I think that it does. I mean, it's not just the only thing that I do. Obviously, no. I mean, people who've read science fiction for a long time also read it. Um, but it is uh, it is a very uh, useful thing to be, uh, not only for my own personal career, but uh, for the genre. And I do think that it uh, helps a lot. I mean, people go to booksellers and say, yeah. what should I buy? And, you know, I get, I get mentioned a lot that way. Um, they go to the library, the same sort of thing. Um, because in both cases, you know, with librarians and with booksellers, what they want you to do is to really love what you're reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what it also means is so that the very first thing, if you're trying something in a new genre... If you give someone the most complex thing in that genre, sure. they're just like, well, ah. Yes, it's not like, oh, you might be interested in science fiction, here's Dahlgren. Right. Yeah. Which might be just a little bit off putting. Right. If you start with Dahlgren, which is a fantastic book, sure. we all agree. Um, but yeah, you're going to be like, oh. Whereas if you start with Old Man's War, um, then you're on safe ground. Well, and also, if you start with Dahlgren and you love it, Right, you may prove disappointed with, <laughs> with the rest of it. Right, exactly. <laughs> baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. But you know, but it is the you know, it is the it, it is the thing that I am, I am intentionally commercial. Yeah. I mean, I, I I I write to the to what I think is going to uh, hit the market. Now, again, um, what I do that by writing the things that I would like to read as well, and by putting my own sensibility you into it. You have to be authentic. Right, you have to be genuine. Right. Well, you have to, yeah, and but the and you have to be uh, entertaining while you do it, right? Right, uh, because otherwise it, it fails. So, I mean, the way that I say it to people is like, I write, uh, you know, one-on-one science fiction, uh, and I enjoy it, and I hope that uh, you know people go on from sure. what I've done to read other stuff. I'm curious. I mean, it's plain from what you write, from what you talk about, that you're deeply familiar with the history of the field. Sure. I mean, no one would sit and write an H.P. and Piper novel if they weren't. I think that's a fair call. <laughs> but how important has media science fiction been to your development as a writer? You mean I, like Star Wars novels? Well, no, 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 not the novels. Just the vis- visual representation of science fiction, both genre TV shows, genre films. And the reason I ask is what I notice is what, the great unspoken influence on modern fantasy mm-hmm. is actually gaming. Yeah. And people don't talk about the impact of Steve Jackson and Dungeons and Dragons and all kind of too much on your Scott Lynch's and your Pat Rothfusses and whoever else. Yeah. Although I think if you ask them, they'll they'll they, say they're, they're very clear, they're very clear about it. Yeah, yeah. It just tends to be mm. not the because you look at a a literary spectrum, mm-hmm. you don't actually look at this enormous influence on modern epic fantasy, particularly. Yeah. And as the face of one of the faces of modern uh, space opera, I am the face of modern space opera. And I'm growling at you, yes. Yeah. Um, I think Anne like he's going to bludgeon me from behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I need the evil echo thing working. But um, is watching the last Starfighter and Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica, whatever else, influence visually what you do? Well, I was a film critic for a number of years, so that was a direct influence on the 
shape and structure of my books. I think mm -hmm. if you notice, my books have a lot of dialogue. Yeah. They also tend to be three-act structures, um, and because part of my writing uh, experience has been, quite frankly, being a um, you know having been a, a film critic. Um, so there's very definitely been a cinematic uh, aspect to uh, to my writing. Uh, it's not necessarily directly Star Wars and sure. Battlestar Galactica, of course, although those are, are in the mix as well, um, but definitely um, storytelling from film and, and from television has been important. I mean, I, list, I think of the, the people who have been influential to me as a writer, and obviously Heinlein's one of them, you know, uh, other science fiction folks, but the, I also tell people uh, Robert Benchley, mm. you know, Carl Hyacin, who is in, in uh, crime thrillers, mm. uh, Elaine May, Dorothy Parker, mm. you know, all these people who aren't necessarily thought of as being science fiction fantasy, because they're not, um, but who, as a writer, were absolutely influential for how I look at, um, you know, what I'm writing. But I will say that as much as film has been, and you were mentioning that, that gaming was an aspect of um, uh, fantasy, uh, video games has been a very strong influence for me in terms of uh, presentation of the novels as well. Uh, you know, Old Man's War, for example. Mm -hmm. The reason that there's a rifle in it, the MP3 rifle, that uses uh, ammunition that is made out of uh, nanobots that assembles itself on the fly yeah. um, is because I play video games, and like in Half-Life, uh, Gordon Freeman is walking around with a rifle and a pistol and a rocket launcher and five different alien weapons. You know, the thing is, is if you in real life he was walking around with all this sort of stuff, he couldn't walk, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so that was something that was very much in my mind. Visually, the, the feeling of uh, the sort of kinetic response of, uh, that you get when you're playing video games, when I'm doing my action scenes, um, I tend to write with that in mind. So um, I'm very much of a... Um, video game generation writer, which yeah. I don't think is necessarily a negative thing, um, particularly because it does mean, when you combine it also with the fact that I write cinematically with a lot of dialogue and so on and so forth, that um, my stuff reads very quickly and reads very easily, and a lot, there it's information dense but does not give the appearance of being so, yeah. which is also extremely helpful. Yeah. Um, how do you choose the, the viewpoint characters for your book? Mm, most of the time, uh, there what the story sort of dictates who it's got to be. Yeah. When I started writing Lock In, I originally had uh, I was going to do this thing where I was going to be very clever, which is always a problem. Um, where I was going to have two primary characters, uh, one of them uh, was Lieutenant Van, who is in the book. The other one is uh, Nick, who is the. Um, who is an another character who's also in the book, and they were going to trade off chapters and slowly but surely. They were going to their stories were going to coalesce, and the problem was after writing this for uh, several chapters, I realized that this was a book that, in many ways, was about um, disability, and I did not have at the center of my story someone who had uh, the disability that was being yeah. discussed in in the book. So I had chosen the wrong characters to tell that story, and yeah. I needed to bring in Chris, who is now the main. Uh, uh, the main character, because Chris was the the right person for the readers uh, to have as their as their proxy. So a lot of times, uh, story will dictate it. Sometimes it's also um, just because I like the particular character. Like I like John Perry. I was always sure. happy to write him. But I mean, you were saying earlier, you know, you sort of you you swim in the social the same social water that we all do. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a desire to make your stories more inclusive deliberately? I mean, you, you've had aged protagonists, disabled protagonists, young female protagonists. Yeah. Is that a, a conscious thing? Yeah. I mean, it is. It, it, because um, if I don't consciously think about it, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about being, you know, the white straight male is that you really don't have to think about anything else, uh, which is great because I don't like to think. Um, but, uh, but quite honestly, what it means is that um, if I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing, um, then 
there is a sameness to the characters. Yeah. Um, and I was a big believer 10 years ago about the whole, well, I don't write descriptions of my characters so they could be any one sort of thing. And I thought that I was being clever. Um, but then I was pointed out to me time and again from, you know, by other people. It's like, if you don't put that in there, then we're going to default to straight white male. Yeah. And I was like, no, that couldn't possibly happen. And then I realized that it did. And lock-in actually is something that I did intentionally to very, you know, not hitting anybody over the head of it, but made, made the point. Chris, we don't know. Yeah. Is Chris male? Is Chris female? I didn't make a deal with it. I, I wrote it. I sent it off to Patrick, my editor. He read it. I, said, I loved it. And I was like, cool, what did you think of Chris? And I said, well, he, I think he was great. He's a great character. Like, are you sure Chris is a he? And he was like, you know, yeah. Like because, and and that was the whole point. We didn't actually make a deal about it at any part of the marketing because there was no, you know, that was not the point. The point is that some people would have would pick it up, some people wouldn't. If you didn't pick it up, eventually, as part of the discussion about the book, it will come up, and that will cause you to think about what your own defaults are. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be banging people over the head about it. But I wanted it to be present as part of the later discussion of the book. And it definitely was on a panel that I was on the other day about Beyond the Left Hand of Darkness, so we definitely rose it. But um, I wanted to ask you about how you balance community involvement Mm -hmm. with being a professional commercial writer. Obviously, that's a huge amount of your time. Right. Do you consciously set aside a certain amount of time? Is being active part of your I need to be responsible I need to give back, or is that just something you feel driven to do? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a couple of things. Um, science fiction always has had, um, in one way or another, and not always successfully though, um, a ethos of pay it forward, right? Um, which I think is a is a generally a good idea and something that I can subscribe to. Um, so it was a decision on my part that yes, this is an aspect of science fiction fantasy that I like and that, that I, I believe is, is worth doing. Um, part of it is I like being part of a community. You know, I mean, I don't hang out in fandom just because fandom buys my books and it's a mercenary sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I actually like fandom. I mean, uh, I won the best fan writer. Uh, award in 2008 and there was a lot of controversy about that because I was a professional writer as well Um, but one of the things that was really important to me about winning that award and why it's actually a very special award to me was because I felt that was the community's way of saying you are one of us Mm. and that was kind of like Mm. that was actually really 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 important to me Um, so and every once in a while someone was you know it's like well he just used that as a stepping stone it's like no I'm really proud of that award. That award means a lot to me, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, just, you know, toss it aside as it's a lesser award. It is, you know, it's very important as a signal to me of where my my place is in the community. Um, I'm part of the community just because I exist in the community. I have the advantage um, of two things. One, that I'm very um, loud, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I am also, um, for better or for worse, you know, not shy in, in the opinions that I have. So, um, and then also, uh, to be, you know, blunt and obnoxious about it, not only am I loud, but I'm also successful. And you have the combination of those two things together, uh, and I have the opportunity to be a powerful voice in the, in the, in, in, in the community. And then the question becomes, well, what do you do with that power? Right. Right. And do you use it to be a person who is basically for for yourself, and to, or are you using it to uh, help champion other people, or to you know bring open discussion, or to do uh, you know, make positive changes? And you know the thing about it is is that whenever you do something like that, you are necessarily going to be polarizing people. There are going to some people who are going to like what you do, and some people that you that don't like what you do. Um, but you have to you have to follow your own. Uh, choices about what you want to do. I mean, and there there are negative parts about it as well. I mean, the, one of the examples that I give is a couple years ago. Um, I said I'm not going to participate in any convention that does not have a harassment policy, that does not explain, give examples of what harassment are, um, and has clear avenues to report harassment. Because, yeah. uh, you know, I all all the women. 
that I knew. A mm. lot of you know the the people in the LGBTQ community that I knew, um, folks who were uh, minorities, all of them had stories that were of this is what I've had. This is a shit yeah. I've had to put up with in order to be part of this community, and. You know, and I'm a guy with a voice. Now, when I did that, what happened, and is that a lot of, it, is that quickly, like two dozen conventions, like updated their policies, and then sent me like tweets going, "Look, we've updated our policies," and justifiably, there were a lot of people who were annoyed with me because they're like, "We've been saying this for years," yeah. and Scalzi yeah. wanders in, yeah. and it's a absolutely true yeah. that, sure. that that is the thing that happened. Um, and two, that is a real uh, problem that actually needs to address. You should not have to wait for John Scalzi or someone like John Scalzi to actually start having action on this sort of stuff. But three, I would still do it because that's the position and that's the power that I have, and, and why not do it that way? And, you know, everybody believes that they're a good guy. Everybody believes that they are doing things for their community and so on and so forth, and everybody, you know, is going to kind of go back and forth about that. Um, The best I can do is, uh, I mean, I really do believe that um, bringing more voices into the community is important. Uh, Helping the community expand commercially is important. There is nothing that I can do for anybody uh, or any success that anybody else has that is going to threaten me or my position, um, which I think is a lot of thing, uh, something that drives a lot of people, this fear that other people's success means yeah. that something is being taken, taken away, away from them. Sure. Finite amount of success. Yeah, there's a, it's a zero-sum game. And if you, if you are part of a, a belief system that believes that this is all a zero-sum game, then anybody new coming in, saying something of, why don't you read you know, people who are women, people of color, people who are trans, you know, and, you know, rather than my stuff, no, that's, right. you're taking food out of the mouths of my yeah, children. Yeah. It's like, no, not, you know, you know, quite frankly, you know, when people, I've had people come to me and say, I'm really looking forward to your next book, but I can't read it this year because I'm only reading women this year. And my response is, awesome. it'll be there next year. Yeah. Right? right. You know, because the book's not going away. Right. Um, but, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, and that's part of the thing is I do not see our uh, community and I don't see our culture and I don't see our commercial field um, as anything approaching zero sum. And so being part of a, uh, you know, choice to as possible, as much as possible and as much as appropriate um, bring other people into the field is, uh, you know, that are new to the field and are, uh, you know, something that we haven't had before. Um, that just seems to make sense to me. Sure. And again, to be very clear, um, you know, it is one of those things that I do, I'm very, very careful about in how I do it and how I present doing it because, you know, genial white man saying, it's okay, come into my sure. field, um, is not what I want to do. And regardless, there will always be uh, some folks who are like, no matter what you do, kind of question your motives. That's fine. You know? yeah. But at the end of the day, um, I still have to do what I, I think is actually the correct thing to do. Sure. Um, how did your community activism lead to you being involved with writers' organizations, and particularly ending up as the CIF for president? Right. Which, in terms of probably the, the, the time between the start of your career and becoming president, was probably one of the shorter arcs in the history of your <laughs> Well, I was very, yeah, I've been... <laughs> His voice is really loud. <laughs> yeah, voice is really loud, for one thing. Well, I joined, like I said, I joined uh, SIFWA back when I, I literally got my contract from Tor. Like, that day, I faxed it to yeah. SIFWA so that I could join because right. I wanted to be in that club. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then for the first several years, I decided, you know, I, I was content just being in the club, right? Yeah. And I didn't really do anything. Um, eventually, what happened uh, is somebody ran for... Vice President, uh, who I thought was going to be a monumental error, and so my I decided to do a write-in uh, as president, yeah. because I thought it was like, well, as president, I can keep him in check. If I had been smart and I had had less ego about it, <laughs> I would have run for vice president. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But sure. you know, hindsight, so hindsight, hindsight being twenty twenty. Yeah. So, wow, I really did invest a lot of my ego in that particular choice, didn't I? Um, 
But uh, what ended up having is, you know, uh, in Sifwa, if you stick your head up, it's like, oh, you volunteered for something. <laughs> and they really grab you and they drag you in. Um, so uh, later on, when uh, there was a big to-do and they needed a group of people to act as a committee about it, um, Michael Capobianco, who was the guy that I ran against, sure. um, said, you said that you actually are interested in helping Sifwa. Show me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so I was like, fair call, and I did that. Um, and two things happened. One, we actually got a workable uh, resolution to the problem. Uh, and second of all, uh, my reputation changed from being this loudmouth person who was just making noise to somebody who was like, oh, he actually is... Committed to actually doing something. Yeah, committed yeah. to actually doing something. And then once you, you do that, they're like, well, soon it will be your time in the barrel. Right. And, um, <laughs> and eventually 2010 rolled around, and, and Mary Robinette Cole, who was uh, the secretary and wanted, who was moving up to vice president or was going to run for vice president, called me up and says, I'm going to be vice president. I need you to be president. <laughs> and, uh, and there was there was reason for that, which was that um, you know there are things that I can bring into the the presidential situation that were useful. I'm good at managing people, um, despite what my reputation is online. I'm not an overly combative person. You know, I, I actually want to find you know the way to make everybody sort of go in the same direction. Um, and uh, I'm a good public face, yeah, because I'm loud and so on and so forth. Um, so I told her, I was like, all right, I will run for president, um, but we need to be very clear. Yeah. I am a big idea guy. I am the genial figurehead. I am the guy who says, well, here's the overarching scope of what it is that we need to do. Somebody needs to handle the details. I said, your job is to handle the details, because if you leave details to be handled by me, I will be the worst president Ever. <laughs> yeah. And so for the two years that she was my pres uh, vice president, I mean, that's, that was our working relationship. Um, and the thing that I like to say is that I was president for three years in a row. Mm -hmm. um, for two years and 11 months of it, it was non-eventful. <laughs> Utterly non-eventful. The last month, things blew up. Right. But we had spent those two years and 11 months professionalizing the organization, building process, so that when things blew up, the previous SIFWA plan for when things blew up is run around and with your hair on fire. The current uh, SIFWA uh, system was, we have a process for all of this stuff, put it into the process. Yeah. Um, which is exactly what we did. It's like, uh, you know, um, the explosions happened and we're like, here we go. Um, and so the fact that we did have, I mean, I was lucky that I got through two years and 11 months without, you know, things blowing yeah. up. Um, but um, the fact that things were handled came to successful resolutions and it was because of a process rather than personalities says to me that those three years were not in vain, that that actually contributed something to, yeah. to the organization. I was going to ask you what you think your greatest achievement was, but that's your legacy building. It's like, here we go, now we yeah. can deal with this. It's, and it's not, any, you know, and it is not... Um, Big and shiny and romantic, you know. No. It's like we Filing built infrastructure. <laughs> we built we built process, right? Um, but the fact is, is what Sifwa needed. And to be clear, it wasn't I came in and said, "Now there shall be process." Um, uh, the president before me had two years, and he had started the processes, uh, Russell Davis. Uh, and I, I part of why I ran was like, we need these processes you know, building processes to continue. Mm -hmm. um, and then Stephen Gould, who, who succeeded me continued that building process. So it was a multi-year, multi-president uh, a thing. But at the end of the day, SIFWA is a better uh, you know, organization for writers, um, and it is a more inclusive uh, organization for writers, um, and part of that legacy, part of it, um, is, is mine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, Elise has just been put on the Tip Tree Honours list yesterday. I know, and it's <laughs> yes, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for And time. you've won Hugo's in the past. Uh -huh. How important do you think, or how valuable do you think, the field's overall self-recognition process is? Um, you know, the act of award-giving, of uh, anointing things as being good, you know, good and worthy. Sure. 
Awesome. How, how valuable do you think that is without narrowing a particular... For a career, you mean? Uh, for, 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 the, for the field. For the field. I was going to say because for the career, it can be very useful. But, the, but, the well, indivi- in, but for the individual uh, and what's, what's rec- uh, useful for the field are two different things. I think it's part of the conversation that the field has with itself. Um, and I think it's actually a really important conversation to have. Um, and I think that uh, what awards allow you to do in, in many ways, they're not necessarily going to tell you what things are the best in any particular year. No. Yeah. Um, you know, as a Hugo Award winner in Best Novel, I can tell you that Red Shirts is not necessarily the best novel of its year, right? right? Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think it's pretty good, right? <laughs> but what the, what the Hugo nominations are about, or what the Nebula nominations are about, or any nomination tip tree, um, is a polling of the temperature of the field. And, in, and some of them are more general than others. Yeah. Uh, the Hugos are, in many ways, very, you know, very general. The Locusts are also very general. general. Uh, the Nebulas have that writerly, organizational slant to them. The trip, tip trees are specifically looking at gender representation. The uh, Philip K. Dick is about paperbacks and pulps and stuff like that. Um, and so it's all part of the conversation that we have with you. Sort of like, who are we? What are we? What are our values? What is important to us? And it, in any particular given year, the answer may not be necessarily what uh, everybody wants to hear, mm. right? Mm. Um, and there are always going to be pressures, and there are always going to be influences, and there are always going to be people who feel uh, like, you know, there was one year I was on the ballot three times, right? Yeah. And people were like, we've, got, you know, we've gotten to the point where we have a Scalzi issue. Right, yeah. you know, <laughs> where is fly spray is he on the ballot because he is writing good stuff or doing good stuff, or is he on the ballot because he's popular? Because he's popular and yeah. got a loud voice, and and again, that's healthy. I mean, we are having conversation. We're going to be having a conversation this year about you know the nominations. Uh, you know, not only with the Hugo, but also with the Nebula, also with you know when when we get the finalist list for the Locust, what that's sure. going to be, um, and. No matter what happens, every year uh, somebody will run around and say, this is as bad as it gets. Hey, no, it's never as bad as it can get. Um, but the other thing is... <laughs> I was just trying to imagine what it would be. Right. Everybody just write no awards. No awards. Nothing happened this year, Rock, go home. Rocks fall, everybody dies. <laughs> but, but the other thing is, is that, you know, quite frankly, um, you know, we have this conversation every year, and the conversation never ends. Nothing is ever final, right? Um, whatever the ballot is one year, the next year is not necessarily going to be the same. The reaction that people to have to a ballot or to balloting or anything else is not necessarily going to be, be the same. One of the things that I, for example, think of, of as very uh, proudly about um, is I won the Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer in 2008, and that did two things. One, Dave Langford, lovely, lovely human being, um, and truly, uh, you know, deserving of recognition and awards, he'd won that award 19 years in a row. There wasn't a problem with that award. I won that award. The conversation around me winning that award was a necessary thing for the community to have also necessary for me to have done is having won the award to say don't give it to me next year there are so many other people who deserve recognition yeah. in this particular thing and one of the things I'm super proud of is that since 2008 mm-hmm. every single year there has been uh, a new fan writer winner Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that that was part of the conversation and evolution that we had because of the awards and you know we did again begin to focus on who are doing who is doing fan writing and where is it as well where is it as well right exactly you know in many ways that particular award has become as diverse as representational of uh, the the community and the field as any award that we give in that you know in in the Hugos. Um, and again, I don't want to overstate, you know, no. my influence on it, but having part that be part of the conversation was really important. 
we're going to, you know, so we're always going to have the conversation. So when people, like, throw up their hands and go, you know, the Hugos are being destroyed or this is, you know, terrible for the field, um, on a day-to-day spot basis, you don't always get what you want and it's not always going to be happy traits through the poppies. But everything that happens is an opportunity for the next year, given the field at that time, um, to adjust, to change, to make decisions um, as a community and as voters on these awards about what they are and what they represent to our field. Do you think there's any merit focusing on the Hugos for a moment? Yeah. Uh, in the argument that to some degree over the last decade the Hugos have lost sight of traditional science fiction? No. I mean, uh, again, the, the question is not, I mean, what do you define as traditional mm-hmm. science fiction? Um, if you're talking about, you know, lasers and explosions and aliens, I've got three best novel nominations that are all about lasers and explosions and aliens and space opera. Um, you've got uh, quite a few nominees who are very much in the traditional vein of science fiction and fantasy. Um, if you're looking at the nominee field, it's very obvious um, that it is not being neglected, um, and that traditional science fiction is part of the as part of the mix. The important thing to emphasize is part of the mix. Yeah. You will also have uh, lots of stuff that you know would have been that is weird. But again, they had a lot of stuff that was weird before. You know, yeah. you know. Uh, if you have Perdido Street Station one year, you have Dahlgren, you know, 20 years before that. You have Macroscope by Piers Anthony back in 1970. And then you go back to The Stars by Destination, which in itself was oddly structured. Right. And, you know. There has never been a time that the, that the Hugos or, you know, any sort of award um, that has a wide nomination base um, has not been a mix. It doesn't necessarily mean that the writers themselves have always been a mix, but the material has always been kind of a mix of things. Um, the actual question breaks my brain because it's like our field is about what if. Right, exactly. We don't know what the thing is, but we're going to say, what if this happened, let's check it out. Yeah, right. As long as it's always what has always been. Right. Yeah. Let's not have any new ideas, any new people, any new faces, yeah. no new media. And that's just not going to work. It's not going to fly. I mean, you know, here's the thing is, is that you know, speaking as a career... Yeah. You know, you start your career, you go through the moment where you have the blossom of your career and you make the name of it for yourself and so on and so forth. And then, you know, then the, the field shifts. Right. And new people come in. Right. And newer voices come in. Um, this is a year uh, in the Hugos, for example. Marco Cluse, who was nominated this year for Lines of Departure, which is, you know, a very, you know, traditional sort of space opera thing. Um he was a student of mine at Viable Paradise. You know, it could be that my window, my moment, it, you know, happened in 2012 for awards or for anything else. And you know what? So be it. So be it. Yeah. Because, as you say, you know, it's a ridiculous question. Is like it has to be always the same. Now, if you want to say, you know, if you want to say the stuff that I don't like is not there, the answer is okay, fine, go vote. And, yeah. and if you, know, you do, that's fine. But the thing of you know, it's not representative of what it used to be. It's like, have you actually looked at the balance? You know, what has changed, um, and which I, you know, am not going to see as a bad thing and kind of look confused at people who do, is who is writing science fiction that also gets nominated? Yeah. You know, Anne Leckie this year, uh, Catherine Addison slash Sarah Manette, you know, this year. Um, Marco Kluse, who is an uh, immigrant from Germany, you know, yeah. uh, another, another perfect example of that. Last year, you know, where, you know, we had a very diverse field for the Hugos. This year, we have a very diverse field of nominees sure. for the Nebulas. Um, if you are going to tell me that this is a bad thing, then I'm going to look at you, you know, sort of sideways. If you were saying, I don't believe that material deserves to be on the ballot, that's a, that's a judgment call. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but if you are saying, if you are using not enough traditional science fiction as a dog whistle for uh, there are too many minorities, there are too many women, there are too many, you know, LGBTQ folks on the ballot and it makes me uncomfortable, I'm like, well, too fucking bad for you, dude. Yeah. You know? But um, if you... So as far as it goes, um, 
I don't think that uh, there is ever been a time where we haven't had a lot of strangeness in the science fiction field. And to cast back to a sort of golden age uh, is the same as you know casting back politically in 2015 to the heyday of the 80s or, or something else like that. You have manufactured this time in your brain um, that is unsubtle, that does not actually recognize the complexities of that time, and that is literally about what you liked about that time. In, in point of fact, um, there was a lot of you know, miserable stuff that shook through yeah. that is no longer part of the culture um, or part of your memories. Um, and so your dream of the way it used to be um, is almost entirely, completely, probably wrong. Yeah, a personal construct. And unique to you, and you had one vote. Right, exactly. You voted. Right, exactly. So let me ask you both, because this actually applies to you both, both you and your work with Twelfth Planet, you and all the things we talk about. How important do you both think it is that any individual in the field is as active as they can be about the things they believe in? Well, I mean, go ahead. You start first. I find that a really hard question because I can only answer it from my perspective, which is that if I'm passionate and I believe in something, I'm driven to act. Yes. I can't sit still and not say something. I can't not do something in my power to change the world around me. If I don't like it, then be active in changing it or shut up. Mm. So for me, yes. But I understand why other people might not be the same. Yeah. But I think if you aren't part of the conversation, then maybe the conversation won't happen. Yeah. There's the, there's the other aspect of it. I mean, there's the expression in fandom is to geafiate, you know, mm -hmm. get away from it all. There's, there is a certain point at which you do experience burnout. I mean, after I was finished being president of CIFA and had that blow up in the last month and everything else... Um, what I really wanted to do was to go away, mm. yeah. right, and mm. not have to have that, you know, uh, participation. And it wasn't about that there weren't things that I was passionate about, but it was just a simple fact that as a human being, my capacity, or as, you know, another sort of common use for it, the number of spoons I had to give uh, to a particular issue were at a, at a very low low. I almost didn't go to the Worldcon that year because yeah. I was so burned out. And my wife was like, you are going to go because you're going to win, and I want to be there when it happens. And I went, and she was right. But, I mean, if I had left it to myself, I was, I was in my house going, I have no patience for anybody. I want to murder everybody. <laughs> I want to put them in a pile and set that pile on fire. I want to pee on, yeah, yeah, I want to pee on the ashes and dance in the mud. Right? I was just so tired of, of yeah. everything. And you have, to factor, you have to factor that in. Which I think is a question, because how do you balance that when you still need to write, you still need to deliver your, your work. That's, right. that's your day job, and you still have to have... Yeah creativity. Yeah. The, the fortunate thing for me is that I came, I came out of journalism, which gave me the gift of being able to write very quickly and, and, and to deadline right. and, and cleanly. Most of the time it works. This time I, I'm not as well as I would like to. And I have my excuses for that, but never mind. <laughs> um, but so um, I have more bandwidth because of training um, than a lot of people uh, otherwise do. Um, so that helps. But there is always, there is always a limit. Mm. And there's also the fact that sometimes... You know, I get pulled into having discussions when I should be writing, yeah. and you know, and you have to be you have to be really, really careful about that. You do have to a lot of the time, but we do have. I mean, we do have to recognize that not everybody, regardless of their beliefs, is well suited for sure. you know being out there. There are a lot of. I mean, one of the reasons that I can do what I do um, is that. Um, I have a monstrous ego, which is really hard to deflate, okay? And yeah. that comes in handy when people are chucking things at it. Mm. The other thing is, is that I have an extraordinarily privileged position in society. So when people try to tear me down, you know, it's a very high mountain to push me off of, you mm -hmm. know? And so it, the amount of effect that people can have on me um, is limited in a way that it is not necessarily for other people. Yeah. You know, I can be heat sink for this sort of stuff because, you know, the other thing is, is that I like to argue, you know, and I yeah. have to actually be very careful about that um, because... It's time consuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so in some sort of sense, um, you know, I'm ideal, you know, so when I get as much 
you know, hate and anger that I do, you know, people are like, ah, oh, we're getting to you. It's like, no, you're, you're really not. You're energized by it, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, well, you know, it is, a, this is, it is the sort of thing. But my wife used to worry, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'd, I'd be on the internet, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm punching people. You know, and she's <laughs> like, and she used to be worried about me, and she realized that I was doing that rather than watching TV. Right. Yeah. You know, and, but that's also a danger because, you know, you have to actually say, am I really emotionally invested in this, yeah. or am I just looking for a fight? So I have to be right. very cognizant of what I'm doing. But, but this is something that I can do that does not, ex, uh, generally speaking, expend a huge amount of psychic damage. Mm-hmm. On, you know, where people come, people do come to me and they're like, you know, remember to breathe. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> Let's go. Um, but um, not everybody is like me or should be like me. Not everybody can do that, and everybody should be engaged in the community to the amount that it makes sense for them to do sure. so uh, intellectually, emotionally, and in terms of the time, that, the commitments that they have. So uh, we can't push people to be involved and no, engaged. Not at all. Um, but you have, what you can do and what is really important is to make sure that the people who want to be involved and engaged have that space yeah. that they can express their opinions uh, and 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 make their beliefs known without necessarily um, you know getting swatted uh, for for doing so. I'm curious, how much time does John Scalzi have to think about being John Scalzi? I I think about it much less than I think people think I do, mm. um, because on a day to day basis. I wake up. I do my writing. I pet my dog. I you know, do my. I play with my kid. There's no. Uh, I go to a convention and for three days I'm John Scalzi, right? Yeah. You know because that's the, the gig. But I go home and I get. I'm just John. Dad. John. Yeah. Or dad. Or, I guess I ask because listening to you talk about it, probably far more than you ever normally would in a day-to-day situation. It sounds like. You have to be aware and construct something of a public persona. Oh yeah, absolutely. To be that, and that's what where you have that happen. Mm-hmm. So you can also walk away from it, have a normal life, yeah. but also be aware of, of what makes sense to project. Yeah. Because you know, I think that there is a some people go online. Yeah. And they literally just blurt their persona, their, their, their personalities onto the page. Right. And if that's what they need to do, that that's absolutely their prerogative. Right. But. That's not what you're doing, is it? No. I mean, the uh, the simple fact of the matter is that uh, in one way or another, I've been a public individual since I was in college. And in college, I was a newspaper columnist, um, you know, for the school newspaper. So everybody at school read me and everybody yep. had a response to me. And I had a lot of time to recognize that there is a need for private space, public space, Private face, public face. The public face is not insincere. The no, public no. version of John Scalzi is me. What it is, and I'm very clear with this online and yeah, yeah. In, in life, is it is a face that attributes are tuned to that situation. I could not be online John Scalzi in the real world because someone would punch me. Yeah. Right? Um, because you can't have the same sort of stridency and, you know, rhetorical sort of punch that you do online when you're writing um, in real life. Because it does, and again, it doesn't mean that that's insincere or that's wrong or that's overly obnoxious. It's tuned to the medium. In real life, you know, uh, when I meet people in my, in my public persona, um, that is tuned so that I am energized. I'm on. I'm not critical uh, in a you know in a, to the people that I meet, I'm welcoming. I'm warm as much as I can be, um, and really, all those things are part of my personality. Because it's cool to have fans. <laughs> it's cool to be able to meet people and have people excited about you. All of that stuff is awesome. Yeah. Um, but it also, but I'm not going to respond to someone who I've just met who's freaking out about me over a book like I am to someone who I've known for 20 years. You know, talking about you know my deadline or something like yeah. that. Um, so I've had, you know, 30 years, uh, you know, close to 30 years to recognize that this is part of, part of my life, that there is, 
you know, and that there is the private and there is the public. Um, and the thing that I would say to people is I am personable but not personal. On the website, I will tell you, and I tell this, say this all the time, I will tell you how awesome my kid and my wife are. I will not tell you if I'm having an argument with either one no, of them. It's not no. relevant, it's not relevant and it's not, you know, it's not what people want. Um, uh, or maybe it is what people want, well, but it's not something I want to give. No, which is probably... And there are other people who may or may not have consented for you to put their private... Exactly, and that is one thing that I, I did very, very early on, was I got both my, my wife and my daughter, uh, you know, engaged in... Something you just did was really cool. Can I talk about it online? Yeah. And if they say yes, then that's great. And if they don't, then, then I don't. That's great, yeah. too. Yeah. 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 But it is one of those things that it was important to me to do that because I am, you know, oh, this would be great. Yeah. Um, but it is also important for them to recognize that they are full participants in our lives together and that they have a veto power. Yeah. Yeah. It's March of 2015, right? As we, as we talk. April. April. April 2015. Well, March for me, baby, still. Uh, <laughs> it's March 36th. March. Is, in your opinion, is science fiction in good health? Uh, the genre? Yeah. In general? Literary terms. Literary terms? I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of, uh, there's a lot of chaff that's, that's going off about, um, you know, what is selling and what is not and whether that's important uh, or not. My personal experience with the knowledge that I have about sales in general um, is that the market is humming along nicely. And I think we're in a really interesting place because um, it used to be something where the market uh, was necessarily dominated by the, the large publishing houses and, and a few uh, smaller things uh, with the magazines. Now we are having uh, the opportunity for small presses and self-published stuff to have the same sort of reach that something that is uh, published uh, by a large company to have. There are still advantages with a large company yeah. in terms of publicity and so on and so forth, but I get stuff from, from 12th Planet Press. Yeah. It arrives to me, yeah. and I, I'm looking at it, it's like, this is cool, and I put it on the yeah. on the website as much as I do anything else that, that I get. Yeah. Um, there is no, uh, you know, as someone who originally put Old Man's War and Agents of Stars online, you know, on my website, um, there is not necessarily uh, a, a diminishment of quality if something is, is self-published now. And indeed, there's a lot of writers who have a reputation, um, who have that established fan base, that could just publish their stuff, um, you know, yeah. online and, and eliminate the middleman uh, if they want. Although I always think that's a bad idea because the middleman does my text editing and my cover yeah. art and everything, all the things that I don't want to do. Um, so there is so I and and the thing is also like for example right now a really exciting uh, thing that I think is kind of flying under the radar um, is audio. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, near uh, Lockin was a New York Times hardcover bestseller. Right. Mm. It has sold as much in audio um, as it sold in hardcover. Yeah. I I read Red Shirts as the audio. Right. Because we're waiting. Right. For me. Right. Exactly. What's not to love about that? Right, exactly. And so for me, um, that has become a, a, a huge part of my world. I mean, right now, um, I wrote the new novel, and I took, I, what I usually do when I write is at the end of each line of dialogue, he said, she said, he yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're reading it, you just ignore yeah. it. In the audio, it has to be said. And so that's the main complaint I got from audio people. So my books now, mm. I'm eliminating dialogue tags a lot more because they're so evident in audio and audio is a substantial part of my market. Of course, yeah. So my feeling about it is that if all you are looking at is chain sales or something like that, um, then you might run around with feeling like, you know, your head's on fire. Um, if you are looking at the overall state of the market and the possibilities that exist for it, um, you know what? I think we're doing we're doing fine. Fantasy's doing better. <laughs> By the way, that has for so long. Yeah, it has for so long. But uh, but science fiction is doing just fine. And this is the thing that gets me because there are people out there, you know, who are like it's not doing well, and, you know, or they try to they. The, there are a number of people who hate me who are like hit sales are not that not, not that good, and I'm like, and science fiction is going down the tubes. I was like, I actually know my sales. <laughs> <laughs> My sales are fine, <laughs> I, and I have a general idea of what the sales of 
quite a few other people are, they're fine. It is always still a game of the one percent, regardless right. of how you right. publish. There, you know, there are going to be the one percent of authors are going to get the vast majority of sales, and it's yeah. nice to be in the one percent if you can manage it. But there is still lots of opportunity. And the five percent doesn't suck. Yeah, the five percent. Yeah, exactly. Everything, everything is everything yeah. is fine. How about your end of the pool? I think it's a very exciting time. I think for five years we've been saying publishing is in a state of flux, and I think we're starting to see different business models come forth that are interesting and offer a lot of opportunities. And I think self-publishing is kind of shaking out as one of those. And there's a lot to learn about self-publishing that traditional publishing can learn. I think it's really exciting. And I'm optimistic. Mm -hmm. Is it still fun? Way fun. I'm having fun. I mean, if I wasn't having fun, I wouldn't be doing it. Same. And I should ask, what's next? I brain melt for three months (laughs) this is actually really funny again because I have this my online persona is is a weird thing Uh, I made mention that when I'm done when I finish end of all things I'm out of contract with Tor right right uh, and that has somehow transmuted into I'm no longer with Tor. <laughs> that, that they have they have cancelled me due to low sales. <gasps> and and I was just like I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I find that very amusing, you know. Um, but the the simple fact of the matter is um, I have uh, I have a short story that I need to write. I have a novella that I need to write. Uh, I may be doing some comic book stuff. I have the three. Uh, TV series that are in development right now that yeah. I will be participating to a greater or a lesser extent. Um, you know, I worked with a video game company for a video game that just came out. I'm going to talk to them when I'm in LA in a couple of weeks about another video game. You know, so there's stuff going on, and uh, somewhere in there, I'm going to write a novel for 2016 as well. Sure. So, you know. Even though I'm out of contract, even though I I don't have a publisher anymore, and it could be tour. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Oh, terrible. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually pitch it to Bain. <laughs> They're just Tory disguise. No, well, um, <laughs> it's truer than you know. Um, I know. Uh, and for you, you're kickstarting, yes. or puzzling, yes, which is another really interesting business model that has really been useful for. Uh, diversifying the field and putting stuff out there that wouldn't have gotten out there before. And I, also as a way of letting people know about stuff that's yeah. out there as well. It's so much work. It's a lot of work. It's very nerve-wracking. It's, yeah. it's full uh, on. I yeah. won't do it. I won't do it because I'm like, I oh, look at all the work and I'm like, I'm lazy. I don't, I'm lazy. Doing it. <laughs> I've thought about it and I've gone, yeah, yeah, no. But, but, te- but tell, tell yeah. us about the Kickstarter thing. Um, so, on the back of Kaleidoscope, which was our diverse YA science fiction That would be fantasy. your tip tree honor-listed Kaleidoscope. Yes. Yeah. I believe it's a multi-award nominated book. Um, two Australians came to me and pitched me Define Doomsday as the next book, which will be um, apocalyptic survival fiction featuring disabled characters, mm-hmm. uh, but not being about disabled characters, but just that, <laughs> hey, disabled people might actually survive. They might have to Right, exactly. And they might have skills that are useful to you. Indeed. So uh, we're, we're raising the money, hopefully, for that project this month um, on Possible, which is the Australian Kickstarter equivalent. Yeah. And we have a Crowbar Award, um, award from... Arts Tasmania, which will match fifty percent of what we raise up to two thousand dollars. So fantastic. if we fund, so it's yeah. So Arts Tasmania is behind us because one of the editors is from Tasmania. So yeah, Imagine. more diverse fiction, science fiction. Well, we'll add the, the link to the podcast when it goes out. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on the Future Podcast today. And John, thank you so very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun. Okay. And with that. <laughs>